This is the Mouse Podcast, episode 1, recorded August 23rd, 2016. It's 75 degrees and a beautiful day in the inland northwest. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. Today, Anne McDonald and I are discussing Mousepaw Games' educational vision and how this all got started. Later on, I'll be talking with assistant lead developer Scott Taylor about what goes into creating a Unicode-friendly string class in C++. It's harder than it sounds. Mousepaw Games is powered by open-source software like Ubuntu, a free and easy-to-use operating system for computer users of all experience levels. More information at ubuntu.com. That's U-B-U-N-T-U dot com. I'm here with Ann McDonald, our Chief Operations Officer and Lead Content Developer. Hello. We get a lot of questions regarding Mouse Paw Games, and we thought we'd spend some time here in the first podcast answering a few of these. Yeah, like... Why educational computer games? That goes back to my childhood, actually, because I spent a lot of time playing educational games growing up in the 90s. I was homeschooled. That was a supplement to the uh, curriculum because I was a very hands-on learner. I had to homeschool the twerp because as a young mega-genius, he was bent on world domination. Uh Got himself expelled from kindergarten. That was not my fault, though. Well, they wanted him to be a normal kid and to dumb down his learning instead of being who he was. And of course, I have to define mega genius as um, you know, most people think a genius is someone who knows a whole lot. But really, it's more of a high intellectual metabolism. I just absorbed information. I still do absorb information very quickly. Uh, but... When you give that kind of power to a young child, they figure that they know everything. Yeah, he really did think he knew everything. Therefore qualified to rule the world. Uh Yeah, well, you know, your fourth grade teacher wasn't too thrilled. Mm. Apologies to Mrs. Moore and Ms. Dudson if you're listening to this. Fourth grade, he decided to take on a 30-year educational veteran and tell her she didn't know what she was doing to the point that she had to grab him by the shirt collar and scream at him to get him to shut up. Yeah, she was teaching geometry, <laughs> which I knew absolutely nothing about, yep. although that was a new <laughs> news flash to me because um, I know everything. And, um, and I wouldn't shut up. I just kept telling her over and over, you're crazy, that doesn't make sense. You're... Now it makes perfect sense. You know, I, I still refer back to things I learned from her in geometry, but back then it I talked to some of my classmates actually a couple of years ago. They still remember this. <laughs> it was rather memorable for everybody. She had to grab me by the shirt collar, like Anne said, and go nose to nose and scream at me, and I ran out of the classroom, parked myself in front of the principal's office, convinced I had suffered some grand misjustice at the hands of my teacher. <laughs> Yeah. Long story short, by the end of the school year, I had to promise never to unleash you on the public school system. Still remember Mrs. Moore trying to explain this to you and your immediate response is, what did my kid do? Yeah. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Poor girl. At the end of the school year, I had said that uh, while I had felt I had matured greatly socially, I I fell two years behind academically. But, you know, now to be fair... (laughs) They actually were fantastic teachers. I learned a lot. Um, 
one of the games Mrs. Moore would play with us every morning was or felt like a game. It was she'd write a passage of um, usually Chronicles of Narnia up on the board and and have typos in there, and we had to raise our hands and point out the different typos. So we learned proofreading it was fantastic. That actually inspired one of the activities in our game. But I went back to homeschooling at that point. After you promised me that you would actually follow through with the lessons I gave you. Which I did usually after that point. Usually. <laughs> usually. Stubborn. I got all my stupidity out early. That was. But then I started creating my own educational games when I was 12. It was just one of those hobbies that appeared out of a prank war, no less. There was a group of college students that came to one of your IRC chats, uh, author chats, and never went home. Yeah, I don't know why they hung out in the chat room for so many weeks. But, um, yeah, I decided one day to prank them, and I wound up getting involved in this prank war that I won four to nothing because I created these web games uh, using clip art and uh, material from my fourth, fifth, and sixth grade textbooks. Yeah, and the college students were contacting me because they couldn't figure out the answers. College students, and they're failing fourth through sixth grade material. Yeah, that was when I first began discovering the American school system had some issues. Yeah, think. Fast forwarding to when you were 16, uh, last day of your sophomore year of high school. Still you, homeschooled, yeah. Yeah, still homeschooled. Well, we were with, um, uh, what was the Columbia program? Virtual Academy. So yeah. we had, it was kind of a cooperative educational program, and uh, you were talking to your contact teacher on the phone John Hefleck. when you fell and cracked your head on the banister. Went from college-level reading and comprehension all the way down to failing pre-K material. I, I, I had been dyslexic my whole life, which usually didn't show up in any dramatic way. I think the worst dyslexic moment before the head injury was transposing the sugar and the salt on the cornbread recipe and making cornbread with one and a half cups of salt and one teaspoon of sugar. I'm not sure the dog ever forgave me for that. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> but after the head injury, the dyslexia got really bad, and so I, I couldn't even read at that point. Yeah, you couldn't even recognize the shapes of letters. And then I worked with Sharon Ashman at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital um, to come up with a protocol to help you. It took a year before you could even look at a book. Yeah, that was a that was a rough time. I couldn't do music, and music is like my lifeblood. I listened to music constantly, but for about a year or so, I couldn't even listen to music because it would make me feel like I was being bounced back and forth like a ping pong ball. It was a weird sensation. Oh, even with the classical music, you couldn't listen to anything. Strangely enough, actually, the first music I could listen to afterwards was heavy metal. I, I still don't <laughs> understand that, but... That me was, either. I yeah. listened to Red basically nonstop for four months. And then um, your contact teacher worked with us and you were able to slow down to, um, to your pace for schooling. You had to cover material all over again. We had to start from the basics yeah. and go from there. It so took an extra two years, but I did wind up graduating high school with a 3.98, which is a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. And, you know, you had, again, hands-on having to, um, do you remember the letters? Uh, we had the cutout letters that you had to move around for the longest time before you could even recognize their shapes. don't remember that too well, but the, to be honest, it did that entire time period is quite, quite fuzzy. I think 
the first project I remember, it must have been at least a year afterwards, was um, the uh, model I wound up doing of of that little village, and then I started doing needlepoint. Uh, but another major aspect of my recovery was the educational games, since I yeah. had to go back to that level of Thankfully, we content. still had them, Yeah, you know, from earlier. So um, you started with uh, Reader Rabbit. Yeah, Reader Rabbit, Clue Finders. And, uh, yeah, that was a, a year in. Yeah, and then, of course, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, you know? Yeah, you <laughs> had a lot of fun with that. And then you started going, well, you know, what if, what if I invented my own? You know, yeah, because I well, because I had done it when I was twelve, and I was still convinced I was going into the medical field at that point because I had my entire life mapped out from my earliest days. But um, my dreams started kind of shifting after that because I began thinking about what it would be like making educational games instead. And um, well, you were talking about how how it was so difficult for you as a traumatic brain injury survivor that there's not a whole lot out there and there really hasn't yeah. been out much out there to work well, um with even if you're not a TBI survivor if you're if you're above the target audience for a lot of these games um if you need to be going over kindergarten level material and you're not a kindergartner you've got to sit through a bunch of fluffy bouncing bunnies singing about shapes and that will drive any person crazy to be it drives some kindergartners crazy that i know of actually so yeah well there are several of those games you didn't even like as a young kid no. you, you hated them because they were baby games <laughs> yeah. yeah kids are kids are the strongest critics of of entertainment that you will find anywhere that ebert and rogers have nothing on your average kindergartner Anyway, for your senior project, you had a couple of different ideas that just didn't pan out, and then you decided you wanted to do educational software, and we tried numerous oh, yeah. aspects we, of we, that. There was some presentation software I was playing with that you could set it up to where the user could click on different things and have different things happen, and I started using that and made actually kind of a, kind of a reboot of the original web games I had made, but still wasn't quite to the caliber we wanted and then we we purchased started. another software and that was that was a disaster yeah that was dismal didn't even didn't even support the animation that i needed in any way shape or form and finally got our money back on that and uh, then uh, you started looking at programming books to at, at your up. suggestion i still remember me saying programming that's something only only someone with a degree can do and, and uh, yes boy, and I, I said you got to start somewhere kid <laughs> <laughs> so I figured I had to go get a degree in programming or something, but it turned out I didn't and very quickly discovered that I could actually do coding. Yeah, well, you know, the educational system you were in was flexible so that you could explore various... Avenues, various... Yeah. I wound up teaching myself eight different programming languages over the next couple of years. Yeah, you do Python and... C++ and a, I'm a reformed VB.net programmer, which from, that was my first language, although I don't count it because I had to unlearn everything from that language just yeah. to. I kept telling you, you need to learn C++. I didn't, I didn't learn C++ until a few years later because I figured it's this, it's this hard language. Somehow I was still stuck on the idea that you had to have a degree to, and now I spend a lot of time teaching people, you don't need a degree to do this. <laughs> So you came up with the idea for your 
your game, you had to present it to your contact teacher, what it was that you wanted to do. And then um, I remember I was editing a book and uh, for a client and and you said, hey, mom. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, with the original idea back when I was using the presentation software to try and put this together, I was thinking, okay, content. <laughs> you can uh, put that together in just, you know, a couple of days. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm infamously bad at time estimates, I, I think. Yeah. So I, I asked you a little bit later in to write the content because I said I'm I'm not qualified to do this well I actually worked with you and I said well what do you want to have happen at each of the activities inside the game and we worked together on that um, because you had to do the majority of it I just guided you on on what needed to be right, done right and then we kept we kept sending it to to Tio and she kept Tio Bach and she kept looking at that and giving us feedback as we went on and eventually she presented it to the board of teachers that was there to grade the senior projects and to pick out curriculum for the next year and she was actually playing the game on the overhead as they're coming in and so they they your thought final version your, yeah the yeah. the final prototype anyway and they thought it was curriculum that they were buying and then she said no this is jason mcdonald's senior project and they were amazed at, at that but they were also kind of disappointed that it wasn't curriculum that they could start using right away but that gave you a lot of hope it and did. that's where you decided that you're you know what i want to i want to do this for real right so we started mousepaw games out of that and at that point i just said you know what i i'm a programmer i i'd figured it out by that point i was definitely a full-blown programmer <laughs> and i was actually pretty pretty proficient by that point but i also knew that content development was not my strong suit so i said hey you know you you taught me twice yeah we figured since i had seen you on both ends of the spectrum mega genius and then disabled that we could work together and and come up with something that was viable not just for young children but for learners of all ages right and we started exploring ways to make the game usable for various learning disabilities and different kinds of minds yes starting with dyslexia because i became severely dyslexic after the traumatic brain injury and it kind of evened out in time my dyslexia is a little bit weird finally was able to define it just actually figure out what was going on in my brain because it's not like i can compare it to the way other people read because i you know i don't read in other people's heads i can only do it in mine <laughs> but i figured out pretty early on that i was flipping flipping lines that's the salt and the sugar and the cornbread i call that vertical dyslexia i cannot read music i write music i cannot read it um but i figured out more recently that i actually don't read entire words most people will read a word and they just need to see the first the, the length and the first and the last letters and their brain fills it in i don't do that i actually know all of the words based on the sequence of letters i read each individual letter Weirdly enough, I don't read slow. I read under good conditions over a thousand words a minute, which 89% comprehension. I still don't know how that math works, but um, I, I've come to realize that a lot of things we label as disabilities, quote unquote, and I would say this includes not only dyslexia, but autism and attention deficit disorder and things like that aren't so much, they're not so much disabilities as they're different brain wirings. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is, you know, you have to learn to live with the brain you've got. I got a different brain when I got the TBI. I can never get the old one back, but you have to learn how to use the brain you have to its fullest power. 
because even people who are, quote, normal have things they cannot do that people with so-called disabilities can. So it's learning what you're capable of doing and fully capitalizing on that. And I want to encourage people to learn how to do that through these games. So unsurprisingly, this first one's about reading and writing the English language. The game gives players a chance to develop a love of reading and writing because those who can read and write have a whole world of opportunities open to them that is not there for those that cannot read and write. Literacy is an interesting topic because we you know, we think we're in a first world country, so literacy must be fantastic because we have free education in the U.S., but it's actually pretty dismal um, because people can read in the literal sense of the term. They can look at the words on the page and figure out kind of sort of what's there, but they're far below where they could be in, in many cases. I think we've, we've shortchanged our young people, um, expecting them to do far less or presenting them with stories that aren't even fun. I mean, as a kid... See spot run. <laughs> as a kid, I remember reading voraciously. I love to read, but there were certain books that I was drawn to, and those were stories that would draw me in and I could become the character. That was a big deal for me. It's amazing how many how many kids these days don't even know about some of the great authors like, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson or uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and the I read The Hobbit when I was 8. You know, I loved that book. I I read um Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. I read the entire series and well, well, how when many... you were you were 6 years yeah. old, you read it in two months during the summer, yeah. the entire the tires that you were just the eating thing. the whole thing. Like, you know, and granted, are you I was even getting this, and I'd ask you, and you'd tell me what the story was about, so I knew that you were actually processing what you were reading at the time. And, and granted, I was above my reading level, but not that far for what you you look at the you look at the books that were presented to the average eight year old, you know, back in 1920, and. They had much higher expectations, and, and the kids rose to meet them. I mean, they were very literate at, in in that time period. You know, people who got the education they got a they got a very solid education, but they were yeah. immersed in reading. Well, unfortunately, our society has said that. Well, you know, if you're you have to be in wealthy families to be able to read. I grew up dirt poor, but the library was free, and I took advantage of the library. That that gave me. Uh, understanding of what other worlds were other people's lives other other societies other other countries to get myself in the shoes of somebody from a foreign country you know was just amazing or 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 you know become Anne of Green Gables or uh, Sherlock Holmes you know there's so many opportunities for me and I I took them because I was I had teachers that valued literacy. I had a third grade teacher who had us write stories. She'd show us a picture and say, hey, write a story about this. And the sky was the limit. And so I, I, I remember my first story was about a, a bear that fell asleep in a movie theater. That was my first story. And I still vividly remember that picture of the bear and um, that people were afraid to go in to watch the movie because he was asleep and they didn't want to wake him up. So that was my introduction to writing, and, and now you and I are working on a children's series. Right. I mean, you passed that love of writing on to me. Even even in my earliest memories, I remember making up stories with you. We 
we'd sit in that big chair and and you'd read me this stack of golden books you know before i could really read on my own and even as i was starting to read and then i started reading to you and coming up with my own stories and we did the bunny world news oh that was that was so funny i I don't know how you even got through the newscast and then the uh, newspaper that we used to mail to friends and family we'd uh, we'd put that whole thing together and all these news stories i would come up with from my imaginary world and you know this is i lived voraciously in in this world of literature both other people's and of my own creation and that was that was a big part of my life and we're wanting to pass that on to other learners right you know somebody who's in high school or college that never had that opportunity it doesn't mean the door shut for them you know you're never too late to learn something new right absolutely of course one of the other obstacles is design issues with like you mentioned stories that were just mind-numbingly boring and i think games sometimes suffer from the same problem because you know i i hate the word edutainment because that that has become completely associated with you know the the multiple choice quiz oh my gosh multiple choice quiz with fluffy bunny rabbits bouncing around the the answers i mean it's just (laughs) There's a certain degree of intelligence that has to go in the design process because, like I mentioned, kids are the hardest critics. And if we don't think it's cool, they're not going to either. Yeah, you know, how hard is it to come up with a creative storyline, really? Well, I mean, movies do it all the time. You have the movies that actually hold the attention of, of the children and the adults and it's not that they have to stoop to the level of having okay you have the potty humor for the kids and then the adult innuendos for the adults that's the cheap way out it's it really is. it's you have to think through what will work as a story and what would the world look like and there's quite a few children's shows that have a massive adult following because they've put that level of thought into it so it's it's not this idea of okay we're creating for children or we're creating for adults is that we're creating for intelligent human beings yeah raise the bar let them reach it so i took the idea i had from the prank war games for our <laughs> own for our own games I, I i took that idea of these lab rats that are combating an evil cat who's trying to take over the world because somehow the take over the world storyline has has worked pretty well throughout literature well that and and kids like a a good challenge you know they want to be the hero and and they get to be the hero adults like it too yeah yeah absolutely and so you mix in the you mix in several elements that work very well you know you have the talking animals which let's face it are extremely popular among the adults i mean if you look right now at things that are extremely popular in 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 culture you know you've got zootopia you have my little pony you have all these shows that you have talking ratatouille Ratatouille. you have all these shows that are movies that are very focused on talking animals in some form or another and and the adults like it just as much as the kids do but it's not talking down to the audience at any point no it's it's painting this this world that can be used as a canvas for intelligent storylines yeah Although, you know, we put a lot of humor into ours, like me being shot out of a yeah. air vent. Well, yeah, I mean, with the history of this game, all the characters being 
caricatures essentially of, of people that we knew <laughs> and you know we were fair game as well so you're the armadillo why did you choose the armadillo well, i was again? looking through clip art because that's what i used back in the day was was clip art and i was looking through trying to find something that just kind of fit your personality and i still remember seeing this blue armadillo it was blue at the time it was this blue armadillo with sunglasses and i just thought that that's you for some reason and i turned around and said hey mom how do you feel about being an armadillo and <laughs> believe you were a little bit caught off guard by that completely out of the blue question. It's like an armadillo, what kind? <laughs> so we did the we did the research and to find the difference between the nine banded and the three banded. The three banded so you can curl up into a ball and you, Yes. And then we have the yeah. sick jokes that come off to that, come yeah. out of that. Yeah. yeah. And then of course Luke D. Mouse is a caricature of me because he's the programmer with absolutely no social skills. I have social skills, but um, they're because of the high IQ, they're a little longer in coming than for most people because people with high IQs tend to focus so much on developing their intellect that they don't think all that much about developing their ability to interact with other well, human beings. Well, then with the TBI, you had to start over yeah. with interacting because you could not read body language for the longest time. Oh, my time. gosh, yes. Of course, I'm a lot better at that now, but Luke isn't. Um, so he's just he's this representation of my awkward stage times a thousand. Um, <laughs> of course, he and I share a love of cheese, so go figure. Yeah, that inventory. And then we take elements of of spy fiction. I mean, spy fiction has been extremely popular for a, for a very long time. You got talking animals when, and and spy. We figured, yeah, put them did together. You, put, put them together. you know, all the, all the fun of Mission Impossible, the original Mission Impossible. What was that? Nineteen nineteen sixty, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, sixties. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because. Shows like that had Hogan's Heroes. Even you know, there's the element of espionage. Hogan's Heroes had a had a very strong following of children that just they were in front of the TV for Hogan's Heroes every single week. And ultimately, what what was the demise of that show was when they put it across in the wonderful world of Disney. You know, who can compete with that back in the day? But yeah, you know, but, but kids and adults both like espionage-based stories, so you put these two elements together at a large dose of puns and... And, and, and adventure. Yes, absolutely. A absolute adventure. Have to have that. So. And then you get Operation Spy yeah, So we have a we have a complicated recipe. And then, of course, further complicating it is the question we get a lot is, you know, what grades are we covering with this? Yeah, we're not going to tie into grades because, again, we, we are aiming it toward learners of all ages, so someone who is having to learn um, their letters for the very first time need to be engaged as, as well as somebody who's recovering from a brain injury or a stroke or someone who's learning English for the first time. So right. the material is, we want to set it so that people can learn at their own pace. Right. And of course, since it's that same storyline no matter what level you're playing at, you can have kindergartners, first graders, second graders, high schoolers all playing the same game at their particular content level, so the activities are adapting to them, but the storyline is the same. And as a result, you have the fourth grader who's reading at a first grade reading level. He's using the same game that all his classmates are. They don't know he's at a first grade reading level. He has something to talk about with them. He doesn't feel like he's been singled out in the lowest reading group and his friends all know about it. He's playing the same game they are. They're talking about the same stuff. And he's just got different words and different challenges tailored to meet his needs without... Um, having to bring down the rest of the class. 
And or, so or even embarrassing him because right. you know. So it's 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 not leaving any children behind, but instead of not leaving children behind by keeping everyone back, it's allowing each child to go at their own pace, but doing so in a way that they can still walk together. So somebody who has a severe disability can play the game and go as far as they're capable of going without somebody saying, "Well, you can only go this far." Right, right. But we don't we don't have caps on the. On the content, I mean, we got some we got some big words in there for the upper levels. I mean, yeah, we do because you know I, I liked big words. You gave me a big word, I was a happy camper. Yeah, acidophilus. Oh my gosh, that was my <laughs> first big word. That was how old was I? <laughs> you were two. Yeah, two years old. Acidophilus. Acidophilus and twins woosent. Yeah, there you have it, folks. I was already using very large words at that point. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot more that we could talk about, but. We only have an hour-long podcast. we got to stop this somewhere. Yeah, there's a lot more to, to cover, but we can do that in future podcasts. Absolutely. And if anyone out there has any questions that they'd like us to answer about what we do and what we're hoping to do, you're welcome to email those questions to us at info at mouseballgames.com. And who knows, we might be able to get into one of these later podcasts here. That works. We're talking to Scott Taylor, assistant lead developer here at Mousepaw Games, about a project he's been working on for the past year. Uh, when I first handed it to him, I stuck my foot in it and uh, said I estimated it would only take a weekend. Uh, never say that to a computer, because it will ensure that it takes far longer. So, Scott, uh, thank you for being with us today. Yep, thank you for having me. So, what is one string? So one string is a replacement for standard string uh, that provides better support for Unicode characters while also using as little dynamic allocation as possible. Unicode, that uh, might be a term unfamiliar to some. What is a Unicode character and what's the difference between that and the uh, char care uh, type we know in C++? The care that we know in C++ uh, that consists of just normal English letters and some symbols, but uh, it's all represented with a single number, and there's a upper limit of 256 of these letters and symbols. Unicode characters are everything else. So we're talking about maybe accented letters that you would see in say Spanish or French, all the way to emojis or Chinese characters or mathematical symbols. It's everything else. And the big difference is that these characters are a lot larger and they require more space to be represented so they can't fit in that nice little number that normal ASCII characters are represented with. Yeah, I'm looking at unicodetable.com here, and uh, yeah, this is the number of characters in here is absolutely huge. I'm having a hard time actually getting to the bottom of this list. Um, how many Unicode characters are there? Do you know? Um, I'm thinking upwards of 130,000 or so. Oh, here it is. Does that sound about right? Yeah, actually, you nailed it. 131,071 possible Unicode characters. Yeah, finally got to the bottom of that page. That's that is insane. 
So why is Unicode so important in our game, Operation Spyrat, that we're making here at Mousepaw Games? Well, it's important for two reasons. Uh, the first is that we're an educational game. Uh, we're dealing with words, and a lot of our games involve the pronunciation of words. And if you've ever looked at how the pronunciations are actually written out, it's, it's not very pretty. It's a bunch of accents to uh, help you try to sound out each of the sounds. Um, so we need to be able to handle those Unicode characters, be able to easily read them, um, compare them and whatnot, so that we can really make good games that use pronunciation. Um, and the second half of why it's important is that um, we need captions for all of the different languages that we want to have the game for. We plan on uh, incorporating a lot of different languages, so we need Chinese captions, and our code needs to be able to process these captions and do stuff with them. So a lot of C++ programmers listening to this might think, well, I can already put a Unicode character into a standard string. I could stick a smiley face in there and print it out. So why do we need a new string class? Uh, so how standard string does it is standard string is just an array of characters or for non-technical people, uh, standard string is just a bunch of boxes and each box can hold a single letter. So let's say that you put a smiley face in a standard string you would only be able to print out or display that smiley face if you printed out the whole string. Uh, say that you had a word and the smiley face, and you just wanted to print out that smiley face. How standard string deals with Unicode characters, you can't access and print out just that smiley face. Because as I mentioned earlier, uh, Unicode characters take more space to be represented. So if you had a word that was five letters long, but in the middle was a single Unicode character, how that's actually represented in standard string is not just five boxes. It has to take up several boxes for that Unicode character. And each of those boxes just contains a fragment of the Unicode character so that when the whole string is printed out, it can handle that nicely and display the correct thing, but you can't actually access the individual uh, Unicode character. You'd just be accessing parts of it. So if you looked in that second box for like the what the three boxes it would take to store a smiley face, you would just see you know, what some random number that might on its own mean some other character entirely. Yep. So with that obstacle, how were you able to make a string that fully supports Unicode? It gets around that issue with the boxes. Uh, so what I did was I made the string a two-dimensional array. So for non-programmers, that just means that each of those characters, I made essentially another string. So rather than a Unicode character taking up several spots across the string, it takes up several spots in its little character string, which is called a one care in my code. So one one string is made up of several one cares, 
and each one care is just a null terminated string. Null termination, it, that that term is probably familiar to a lot of C and maybe some C++ programmers, but for those of us who have been relying entirely on the magical abstraction that is a string class, what is that exactly? Uh, so null termination comes in when you don't know the size of a string. So it's just this little marker, a null terminator, that goes at the end of a string so that you loop through the string, and once you hit that null terminator, you know that you've reached the end of a string. So in my one string class, each of these one cares is null terminated. So if you had just a normal ASCII A, that one care would look like A, and then the next character would be the null terminator. So if you read through that one care, it would read the A, and then it would read the null terminator after that, and it would know, okay, this is just an A. But if you dealt with a Chinese character, then it would read through each of those several parts that make up the Chinese character, and then it would hit that null terminator, and it would know, okay, this is the end of the string. This is all one character together to make up that Chinese character. So that sounds pretty simple in and of itself, and again, that's that premise is kind of why I uh, stuck my foot in my mouth initially and said this would only take a weekend. Um, what are some of the challenges you faced in creating one string? Um, so one of the biggest challenges was avoiding using all the dynamic allocation meant having varying sizes for one string, but knowing those sizes up front, which led down the path of using a lot of templates. Do I need to explain templates at all? Well, uh, in short, a template's just uh, this, basically this way of saying, we don't know what this value or what this type's going to be, so it's just a fill-in-the-blank uh, that we just tell the compiler to hold off on filling in that blank until we hand it to it later in the code, when, basically when we use the class. Which sounds really nice, and it's it's really powerful, but it makes the code a lot more complicated and a lot less friendly because you just have fill in the blanks everywhere. And then you have to have certain parts where you say what those blanks can be. And it just results in a lot more, a lot more complicated code. And earlier on, I had to actually have functions for each of the possible blanks that a one string could be. So each blank would be a different size. So if I had a one string that was eight one cares long, that would be one string eight. So I would need to have a function that could handle one string eight, one string 16, all the way up to one string 4096, um, just because of how templates work and they aren't very pleasant. Some people might be wondering right now what the problem with dynamic allocation even is. Uh, and I kind of discussed this premise in an article I wrote a while back called uh, Don't Annoy the Warehouse Guy. Basically, dynamic allocation allows you to tell the computer how big something's going to be while the program's running as opposed to figuring it out in advance. 
this is a really powerful tool, but standard string is an example of how not to use it, because it can get out of hand pretty fast. Every time you add a new character to a standard string, it has to completely reallocate the entire string. So if you think of the memory as this giant warehouse, and you want to store something on consecutive shelves, you've got six pallets of stuff you want right next to each other, the warehouse guy has to drive around in that warehouse and find a shelf that's got room for six pallets. And that takes him a little bit of time. But each time you add a character to that standard string, you're now having warehouse guy go back and find a spot for seven pallets and move those six to the seven. And then you add another one. So now he's looking for a spot with eight and then nine and 10, 11, 12, so on and so forth. And those numbers of the amount of time wasted add up pretty fast. So the idea is instead of just allocating every time we add a character, we give a little bit of extra space. And we do this by working in powers of two. So we start out with room for four one cares, then eight, and then 16, 32, 64. Every time we run out of space, we double it again to the next power of two. So we have a little bit of room to work with before we have to send Warehouse Guy looking for another shelf. Yeah. So one of the other huge challenges is that one string was replacing a very uh, already fleshed out thing. Like standard string has been used for a long time and it's a very defined class and has a lot of functions um, and it has several versions of each function. So there will be a version that will take standard string, a version that will take a const care pointer, a version that will take just a normal character. And so one string has to do all of those, but also has to expand to include itself and include one cares. So there's, there's several definitions and different versions of each function. So it results in a very large end result and a lot of code. So I know in an earlier version of your code, you were actually using macros in addition to templates, and macros are largely considered one of those things that we just don't use very often anymore. What led you to those? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, I had to write functions for each of the different sizes of one string, and that would involve writing a lot of repeating code and typically templates are the answer to working around repeating code but when you're already using templates then the answer is pretty much never to throw in more templates because that just makes everything a nightmare but um macros made it so that i could just write a piece of code and then just call that macro in each of the separate functions for all the different sizes of one string. Um, but eventually I got rid of that because I found a way to have it so that the functions didn't need to worry about the template size by having a parent class that wouldn't involve templates and then just the child being one string and its brother being quick string, they would handle the templates so then a single function could just handle that base type and then one string and quick string would go and handle the templates. So I could get rid of those macros. So you mentioned quick string. What is that? So the downside of one string is that 
in order to fully support the Unicode characters, it ends up being a bit less efficient and slower than standard string, but we still need that Unicode support, but we would also like to have a faster replacement to standard string. So that's where quick string comes in. And quick string, um, rather than having the array of array of characters, it's just represented just like standard string where it's just a single array and one character goes in each box. But with less dynamic allocation and maybe a little more clean logic, uh, quick string is meant to be faster than and more efficient than standard string. So quick string will provide the speed and one string provides the Unicode support. So you're getting pretty close here to uh, the 1.0 version of, of one string and quick string. What are your plans for the future? What features would you like to see added down the road? Well, I'd still like to make one string as fast as I can possibly make it so that it can at least be really close to standard string in terms of speed and provide that Unicode support. But besides that, I would just want to add more features to both one string and quick string. For instance, uh, I'd like to add functions functionality to replace um, string stream uh, just so that both one string and quick string can kind of knock down two of uh, C++'s standard libraries, big lumbering behemoths. So basically that way you can just put whatever type you need to into the string and have it converted over like a boolean or a, an integer or a float or whatever. Yep. Well, we're definitely looking forward to seeing this uh, land in the next couple of months. And uh, quite exciting, you know, in the code with all the... Uh, all the trappings finally available in C++. So, thanks for sitting down with us today, and uh, as always, thanks for all your hard work. It is much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Should be done soon. One string and quick string are part of Polyp, an open-source C++ library providing powerful, high-performance tools for modern software development. More information at mousepawgames.com forward slash polyp. Thanks again to Ann McDonald and Scott Taylor for joining us today. Our music is Outer Orbit by Revolution Void. It was licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. For this and more great free music, check out the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Distribution of this podcast was made possible by the Internet Archive, a nonprofit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Check them out at archive.org. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Note Derivatives 4.0. In other words, you're free to download and share. More information at creativecommons.org. The Mouse Podcast is a production of Mousepaw Games, dedicated to creating innovative solutions for education. You can find out more about our company and projects at mousepawgames.com. I'm Jason C. McDonald, wishing you a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.